At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Uh. Check it out now. Uh. No doubt now. It's the Beating the Book Podcast, Gil Alexander. Time for another in our series of sports betting profiles during this global pandemic. Today, on the heels of so many who have been kind enough to give us their time and provide insights on the show during this strange time in all of our lives. It's Joe Pita, Joe Pita, author, a wall street guy, if you will, uh, someone who has had flirtations with all kinds of things, sports betting related. And we'll get to some of those, including what I feel is perhaps the biggest story around the sports betting industry that never got told over the last few years in Las Vegas and beyond. Uh, Joe was right in the mix with that. He's got all the insights uh, and just all the different ways that he's been pulled into the sports betting arena, whether he wanted to by design or not. Fascinating guy, super smart, always a friend of the podcast. We're happy to have him as part of our series here today. Enjoy Joe Pita on the Beating the Book podcast. It's a numbers game with your host, Gil Alexander. It's one of those idiots who believe in analytics. It is a numbers game on a Tuesday. It's Gil Alexander, Sirius XM Channel 204, Visa.com, the Visa app, Fubo Sling and Game Plus. How you doing? Uh, hope you're staying safe. Hope you're doing well. Uh, on the show today, uh, we'll talk about baseball's latest ridiculous 50 game plan, if that's going to be a thing, not a formal offer, but a default offer, if you will. But today is a Tuesday. And for those who have been uh, keen observers of this show uh, during the pandemic, Tuesdays pretty much reserved for a betting profile series that I've done. Uh, if not now, when our chance to sort of get into the minds of really influential people in the business and from all angles, uh, Alan Boston has been with us uh, for the series, uh, Rufus Peabody, Dr. Bob, Captain Jack Andrews, Dink, Alan Dankinson, Ray Marino, uh, Spanky was here last week. 
Today uh, is an old friend of mine who is fascinating in so many ways. Uh, and honestly, uh, with him, I hope to reveal the biggest untold story or story that could have been, if you will, uh, in Las Vegas the last uh, three, four years. It ended up uh, having a conclusion, but uh, something was simmering under for a big betting company for so many years. That's just one aspect of him. Uh, but he has a Wall Street background, a major accident in his life that changed his life and uh, steered him towards this industry, if you will. Uh, it's Joe Pita, everybody. How you doing, Joe? Good morning to you. Thanks for spending the time. Good morning, Gil. It's uh, you're right. We are old friends. It goes back, I think, to 2011, maybe now, or maybe 2012 preseason uh, yeah. is when we first we met for tacos in San Francisco. We did. Where did we meet for tacos? I don't even remember this. Where did we meet oh, for tacos? Tacolicious down on uh, Chestnut. <laughs> That's right. Tacolicious, which now has a different Chestnut location. That's Whatever. right. They they they, they didn't bend. We were, think we'd start with the, we were early yes. adopters. <laughs> That's right. We really were. Um, by the way, Joe, for those who listen to the Beating the Book podcast for many years uh, and a numbers game, obviously the author of Trading Bases, which we'll get to, and Joe Pita's Master's Tour Guide from 2019, which is a whole nother thing. That, that's the thing that makes you so interesting, Joe, is there are so many tentacles uh, to this next hour with you. And, and, you know, not to sound like James Lipton, uh, from inside the actor studio, the late great James Lipton, it should be mentioned. Uh, but we always start at the beginning. Um, where did you grow up? Did you have a financial background in your family that led you to Wall Street? And what were your first experiences with betting? Yeah, so no, I grew up outside Philadelphia. Uh, my father was a professor, immigrant, uh, and as an immigrant and with a uh, first name, Erminio, which immediately announced uh, his sort of foreign presence. Uh, he, you know, his parents didn't speak English. And, and so one of the things he did to try to be American was adopt baseball. So this is in the era of uh, the 30s and 40s. So he grew up in Philly. So it, it, he you know, adopted Phillies, of course. Uh, but he loved Joe DiMaggio, obviously, as an Italian-American sort of representing the sport. And so that was passed on to me. Uh, as far as financial stuff, not really. He did teach me to read the stock tables uh, on a summer vacation, I remember, down at the Jersey Shore. And that became – I then became somewhat obsessed with that. And, you know, like the title of your show, it's a numbers game. And I was uh, – I was – fascinated by the numbers um went to as far as yeah i was in the the parlay cards um a buddy of mine well i happened to be lucky because in 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 uh homeroom in high school his his last name was paven uh, which sat right in front of me Peta, and his dad uh was known as augie the bookie and Augie, so he would come in with uh, these parlay cards, and you know I couldn't get enough of those, and I uh, that that really that got me sort of hooked on on the game. Um, but it wasn't as prevalent back then. You know, I remember going to college. I went, you know, and then I it, sticking with the numbers. I went down to Virginia Tech to become a CPA. Met great, uh, graduated in accounting. And uh, then moved up to D.C., where I was uh, a, a tax advisor 
um, with, with some famous clients. I, I think I've said this to you. I don't think I've said it on the air, but one of my former tax clients was Paul Manafort, who is now in jail for, among other things, tax fraud. Um, but uh, that that was the that was the type of of uh, rich and famous clientele that was in uh, uh, D.C. at the time. But I remember betting on sports then. Again, you know, you had the bookie, whether it was Legs or Tony or Augie. Um, it was. Uh, it was the, the, the score line, the score phone, right? That was the man calling the score phone was such a big deal. I can still hear those recorded <laughs> voices in my head. Yeah. Ah, that, yeah, that, that was a, uh, uh, so that was sort of, it, but it was always a hobby, right? I, I, you know, it, I viewed it as something to try to crack, but I understood the entertainment aspect of it too. Um, so there was never a, uh, I never, there was never a stigma around it to me because like I said, I, I viewed it as part of the entertainment industry. Um, and, but then my professional path then was to get to wall street You know, after being an accountant for so long, I wanted to get to wall street and, you know, again, similar game, right? It, it's a, you know, you're trying to allocate capital based on incomplete information which is, you know, sort of sums up sports betting as well. Um, so I ended up get got a graduate degree, ended up going up to, to Wall Street. And now I was really, my colleagues were my people. Um, these were, I, I didn't realize how well established the New York City uh, sort of uh, 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 betting market was. Um, so now you've got people to talk to all day about it. And it uh, uh, it became you know a much bigger part of my life, like you say, 15 years into that career. So I guess that was 2010. Now um, I did get injured in New York. Um, I got, as you said, there was an accident. I got uh, run over by an ambulance while I was a pedestrian, um, and that laid me up and had me in a wheelchair for a little bit. And that's when I had the um, you know sort of percolating in my mind was this idea that the critical reasoning overlap between asset management and sports betting. Um, and then the money ballization of baseball, uh, they were all related to me. I saw overlaps where one industry did something better than the other two. And, and, you know, you could find something for, for points for all of them. And I had the idea to put it into a book and that's how trading bases came about. Uh, I had never written anything. I got very lucky. I was fortunate that the movie Moneyball came out in the, I guess, fall of 2011, just as I was pitching the book to publishers. And it it, it had a good elevator pitch because the elevator pitch was very understandable. It, it was uh, um, Moneyball meets Bringing Down the House. So there you have two books that were successful books. They were both, well, Moneyball wasn't a memoir, but it, it uh, um, it it was easily understood by the publishing industry, and you know that that was that was fortunate. Be- and then because the movie was doing so well, uh, there are a lot of publishers wanted a piece of it. Um, so that's that's how the book came about. Um, and the book came out. Yeah, th- and then it gets interesting. This is how I met you. So the book yeah. gets written in 2011, uh, submitted early 2012 for early 2013 publication. And the publisher uh, liked the initial manuscript, you know, very much. And they said, 
Uh, we're going to need an epilogue, though, for 2012, because if, you know, for people who haven't read the book, it's essentially it, it's a chronological account of 2011, really starting with my accident. Um, and so the and it, it goes into you know a lot of stories. It, it is a memoir. So it's it's my stories of Wall Street. It's my stories of growing up um, in a baseball family and how, you know, the, the, the fan, the fandom of baseball is in there. And then, of course, the betting. And the we get to uh, 2012 and they said, we're going to need an, an epilogue for 2012. And they said, we have this idea. We want to kind of run it by you. What what would you think about going to Vegas with the marketing budget for the book and betting on baseball um, legally so that, you know, we could we could tell that story. <laughs> and I thought, that's a that's a that sounds like a baseball betting fund to me. Um, that sounds like a great idea. And so then I, I called up family and friends um, and, and that's where I met you, um, called up family and friends. And I'm like, you know, my degenerate buddies, if they know I'm going out there, they're going to want to piece of this. <laughs> And so, yeah. I, one, one, one could say we were entity betting when we weren't supposed to. Maybe. I don't know. Some might that charge is, that. Who knows? That, yes. yes. <laughs> that would, I always likened it. I, my, I rationalized it to the guy who uh, collects um, lottery ticket money from his bowling buddies to cross state lines and, uh, you know, <laughs> and bet on the, yeah. the lotto where it's in a state where it's legal. Um, let me, let me step in here for a second because, you know, we, we glossed over something that, you know, it was, was a cataclysmic event in your life. And that is the getting run over by an ambulance. We just, you can't really say that sentence and then just go on. Um, you were, I mean, you had been through a lot, right? You were at Lehman brothers, I believe when the financial meltdown happened and that was just its own, you know, uh, just the nine 11 of that industry, if you will. And so you and, had and Gil, Gil, I yeah. worked in, I worked at, you know, the World Financial Center on 9-11, too. So uh, that, right. that uh, yeah, I, it's yes, I it was a very eventful 15 years. I'm sorry, but go on. Well, no, 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 no. What was your by the way, what was your 9-11 experience real quick? I mean, how was that that day? Well, yeah, it was surreal. Um, our building was attached to the North Tower via a footbridge. Um, so I, you know, walk through that lobby every morning at about a quarter of seven. Um, so, and I, and I actually had a window desk to the West side highway. And I remember the, the first explosion, the first plane hitting, I actually looked down from my window because I thought maybe it was an, I thought a car accident or, so I looked down and did not see the sort of impact, um, for about three or four seconds. Um, so it was still unclear what happened in the North tower with, you just see the gaping hole and, and the smoke starting to build up. So there's a lot of confusion about what was going on. I thought it was a gas line, uh, break person, you know, that was just my guess. There's an explosion up there. Um, and then you, you know, you start hearing the reports, a small plane, um, but we're still at the windows and then we see the second plane come in. Yeah, what's that? Forty minutes later, I think it was, um, and then you have no, no question at all about what's going on. Um, and that was left the building and, and actually never walked in that building again. Uh, we, yeah, and I lived, uh, I lived on 18th Street at the time, so walked, 
uh, stayed down there in the, for people who know lower Manhattan there, Stuyvesant High School is, was just north of the uh, North Tower. Uh, and at that point, it wasn't so built up. So there were actually parking lots and baseball fields and tennis courts right uh, on the West Side Highway. So stood there out in sort of the baseball fields for quite some time watching. Um, and uh, that 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 was, you know, that's that's seared. It, it, it's yeah. uh, the, that was that was tough. I mean, you live so you live through then and so many people I know everyone in New York has a as a 9-11 story and one more tragic than the previous. So you you led the entire New York experience. So you lived through 9-11, uh, 2008, Lehman Brothers. And you write extensively about uh, Lehman Brothers in your book, Trading Bases, how a Wall Street trader uh, made a fortune betting on baseball, which, by the way, I think was a second subtitle to that book, if I'm not mistaken. Wasn't there like a not necessarily in that order? Subtitle. Yeah. My, my subtitle, which was on the hardcover, was uh, a story about Wall Street gambling and baseball, not necessarily in that order. Um, That's right. And the when the paperback books re- rights were sold uh, from my publisher to a different publisher, they in the publishing industry, the publisher really owns the cover, the outside of the book. You own the words inside. Uh, so they changed the subtitle to make it a little more uh, dramatic. I, I, I was never pleased with it. Um, it, it, to me, that wasn't the story. Um, and fortune is such a, uh, I guess, relative word. Um, I would never have characterized it like that, but you know, that's publishing and, and, yeah. uh, the story's inside, but so, yeah. And so again, so you live this in, it's just the quintessential New York experience, uh, one tragedy of after the next, one of a different kind uh, than the other. And then you have your own personal one with the uh, literally and, you know, you, you glossed over it, but you were on the ground and we're going to have to go to break here. So I want to pick this up right after the break, Joe. But you were literally on the ground in in New York City looking down at your mangled leg. Um, and, you know, I get chills even sort of saying that because. We all, I mean, I, when I ruptured my Achilles, right, there's that moment where it's all surreal and it's all happening to you. This was, I mean, what I, what happened to me is nothing would happen to you. Like your leg was just destroyed. And this is where it transformed. As you point out, you was like, hey, what if I apply these principles to my first love of sports betting? Uh, I want to get into that summer of uh, 2012 uh, when we, when uh, you did the betting there and what your biggest takeaway from your experience for half a baseball season was in Las Vegas from that and then move on to what I think is the biggest single story untold story in all of Las Vegas and Joe was front lines for that has to do with a big betting company coming back right here on the numbers game at Beeson the sports betting network it is Gil Alexander live in San Francisco, uh, San Francisco, rather doing betting profiles uh, throughout the pandemic. So interesting that Joe Pita is right across the city for me, uh, west of where I am. And, you know, we'd have to arrange to even meet each other, obviously, in these very strange times. Uh, but going through his story and it just gets more fascinating uh, from here as if you hadn't lived through enough. By the way, was the use of the word mangled appropriate when you looked down at your leg when the ambulance <laughs> hit you? Yes, and, and you and I yes. being of similar ages, and we certainly remember Joe Theismann. I, I viewed it as a Joe yes. Theismann situation. Oh, uh, I was I was there for the Joe Theismann game, by the way. Yes, this was not fun. By the way, if you want to, if I can recommend anything for you, the E six the E sixty episode on Alex Smith is just a sight to behold. Can't watch it. 
could not will I'm not sure be able can. to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I'm recommending it to the wrong person, but anybody out there, yeah, it, you're ab- I, I can tell you. That. By the way, and here's a ridiculous detail, but for some reason, my my dumb human brain wants to know this. What intersection was this in New York City? Oh gosh, West Broadway and uh, Church, I think. Down, so it was right. Uh, it was right at the corner of at the time where the proposed mosque was going to be. Um, so right. it was. I lived on Murray Street, right? We had an apartment on Murray Street for my work in New York, and it was just a block south of that. So West Broadway, and I think it was Church, which was a block south of Murray. And uh, so because of the location and because of the police presence um, that was around there at the time, I was attended to very quickly um, by uh, by some uh, city personnel. Um, but on the other hand, it was a very, yes. uh, it was a sick, it was an intersection, therefore, that had cameras all over. Um, and the FDNY claimed that there was no footage of the accident when it came to uh, uh, discuss the legal ramifications. Compensating, <laughs> so, yes. That's... Yeah. Okay. So uh, you're, you're convalescing. You're like, hey, I can apply my Wall Street principles to the love of my life, baseball, betting. I love that as a child. It produces the book Trading Spaces. And as you say, uh, a great case study for them. They were like, look, uh, let's, let's put this into action for the epilogue of the book. Go to Vegas and uh, put this to the test. And so you go there, and I was with you for much of this. I know you stayed uh, you stayed at your little kitchenette place at, at Trump over there, and you, uh, you did this every day. And in the end um, – First of all, was it a winning or losing proposition? Let's get that out of the way. Yeah, it, it was not guilty. The period I was there was July 4th through the end of the season. I had had a great 2011. 2012 got off to a good start. And July, the first five weeks, July through the second week of uh, August, uh, was brutal. I remember it was highlighted by uh, the very first night there with uh, Sabathia and Rivera blowing a 4 nothing lead, in the, which should have told me something. On I think it was July first, and later in in I think later in July the low point might have been the third week in July, when the Nationals blew and Strasburg on the mound blew like an eight nothing lead to the Braves, and that was that <laughs> that was that was the low point. So it was a very brutal, rough three and a yeah. half week start um, that got me in a hole that I didn't get out of for so which made me of course feel bad for the outside capital that had come in. Um, and which is obviously why I don't like the title of that book either, because that was something that was never emphasized. What was really I was trying to emphasize was the building of a model um, and the like we said, the, the critical reasoning overlap between these uh, uh, pursuits. Yeah, I can remember a night or two. I, I remember once, once a usually mild mannered Joe Pita got into it with uh, other people in a sports book over the outcome of a game. They had no idea how much was riding on it for you. Uh, oh, Dan Straley. Yeah, Dan, Stra- <laughs> Dan, Dan Straley. Straley. He got oh man, he got called up. Uh, this is this is worth telling because I, I don't think I've, I've I think we've talked. We said hey, we should tell this on the air sometime and and never did. But I'll, I'll try to make it quick. Dan Straley, this was probably August, late August, I believe, got called up by the A's to make his first start. And uh, at the time, I was using a lot of uh, minor league analytics from one of the original baseball prospectus guys, uh, Clay Davenport. And the numbers did not like Dan Straley. 
And it was, so they were playing Toronto that night. And the thing opened, I think, at the A's at like uh, minus 130, 135. And I'm, I'm piling on Toronto. It, it I'll tell was, you what, Joe. I, I, I hate yep. to say this. I got I to gotta take a break. I want to tell the okay, dance yeah. rally story. And I want to get the biggest takeaway from, because I think the bigger point is your biggest takeaway from your Wall Street background of how ridiculous you found the sports betting industry in Vegas, um, obviously pre-legalization. We'll get into that. And then the biggest story never told. Coming back on a numbers game at Visa with Joe Pita right here on the Sports Betting Network. With Gil Alexander. A numbers game proudly brought to you by Manscaped.com. Manscaped.com is the tools for your family jewels. You get 20% off plus free shipping with the code VSIN at Manscaped.com. That's 20% off at Manscaped.com with promo code VSIN. It's Gil Alexander. Joe Pita, kind enough to uh, join us uh, today on the show, the author of Trading Bases and Joe Pita's tour guide presents a 2019 Masters preview. My goodness, we'll get to that eventually, too. But let's get back into this story here. This is from 2012. This is your summer in Las Vegas betting baseball. This will start out as a very funny story, but will actually lead into the broadest point that was your biggest takeaway of that summer. Yeah, so as we were talking before the break, Dan Straley's making his debut. Uh, I've, I'm modeled pretty uh, hard against Dan to fade him and, and Toronto's an underdog that night. I think it opened like minus 135 plus 125 and I start putting money on Toronto and, and as can happen, you, you, you get some limits um, and, you know, and then you wait and then you, you can go back to the counter. But meanwhile, in the two hours before the leading up to the game, the odds keep going up on, uh, on Oakland. So it's price for me and Toronto's getting better and better, but, by the same token, now that's making my my um, expected, as I calculated it, edge higher and higher, which is demanding to put more and more of the fund in until it, it eventually reached a a two percent play, which which meant it was going to be about a twenty thousand dollar play. Um, so that's what I have on on the game, maybe at a blended rate of one forty five. And, and you're right. And I'll let you come back to that. The way I had to bet that I found aggravating in that I was being limited and then they would make the price better as I'm sitting there. Um, so yeah, we'll, and, and that was just, that's not the way we work on wall street when we price stocks and, and there's a much more efficient way to do it and we can get to that. But so, yeah, so, and of course, Dan Straley's in trouble all night and, but yeah, he's stranding guys at, at, you know, at some 80% clip or something. <laughs> and I think it's four, two entering the night. And I'm just sulking, like I'm. I'm very quiet. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, sinking in my chair. I'm, I'm at the Westgate, and it. Uh, I can't remember who the closer was for Oakland at the time, but it was again a guy that I did not like, and it was clear he was hanging sliders. You could just see it, and I'm like, somebody's going to jump on one. And sure enough, one runner on, two outs. Uh, somebody tied it um, on a hanging slider and and drilled it into left field. And I must have come out of my seat five, six feet in the air. And to, to, so it's tying the game at four. And because I could see it coming and I just exploded. And, and you know, I'm, I'm sure I made some sound. And there was a group of like six guys to my right. And they, they're looking and the one guy goes, yeah, guy has $10 on the over. And <laughs> <laughs> if he only knew. 
That yeah. set me off. <laughs> and yeah. that's when it just, then it was essentially me versus eight guys. And that, that game ended up going to the 15th or 16th inning. Um, oh, and so it was like the, oh, it was, it was a terrible experience. And, and of course, Oakland won the game in like 16 innings. So uh, yeah, it was, it was Coco Crisp threw out a guy in like the 13th from, uh, uh, deep in left field, it, it, it was it, it was painful. Um, but, so but what it what it was representative of was the thing that I remember most from that summer, which is from your Wall Street background. Again, you're like, this is so primitive the way they do business here. Explain that. Yeah, we have something on Wall Street that we call sales trading, and you know, there's traders who are your market makers. And then there's people who are trying to, uh, they're, you know, salesmen, brokers, you can call them what you want. We call them sales traders. And what there's an art to sales trading. And, and what it is, it, it's an attempt to bring buyers and sellers together and find that price discovery, um, hopefully maybe after the market maker has stepped in and, and started by maybe committing some capital. And so to me, and, and this happened over and over in the summer, whether I was at the Wynn or, or this night happened to be at the Westgate, um, I did almost all my business there. And the third one was the Venetian, which was a Cantor book, uh, which was my first introduction to Cantor. And, and we can get into that. And later in the something in the summer, Riviera uh, turned their book over to William Hill. That was William Hill's first outpost in Vegas. Uh, and that was not surprisingly a bad experience. But it was what used to bother me was I would be limited on a bet and I would be sitting there and they knew me, you know, at this point I'm in every day and the odds would go up essentially at a better price than I was trying to get when they were limiting me. And I didn't understand why nobody was ever saying, Hey, Joe, come here. You know, we, we, you know, either we got somebody on the other side, but like, how much would you do here? You know, and, th- and that's the art of sales trading. It's knowing your customer. It's opening them up to so that you can put together a bigger trade. And I viewed that as a huge opportunity, especially if Wall- if if the state and the industry was trying to attract the entity betters. To me, one of the reasons they were never going to succeed is they didn't know how to handle entities. They didn't know how to sales trade in my parlance. Um, so yeah. that that was, you know, among, that was one of my observations of the industry that summer. Um, and, and I think that was the other thing you asked for my takeaway was it's a grind. I mean, that that was a grind. Um, Cantor was the only one that that had anything that uh, resembled mobile betting at the time, which is kind of a funny story in itself. Um, but that led me because I tried to get to know everyone. That led me to meeting a few times with Leah Matus, who at the time was the CEO of Cantor, and I became fascinated with their business model. Became fascinated with their business model, which again, I don't want to run into a break and get that started, but essentially, um, Joe's experience then in 2012, uh, again, from the Wall Street background, realizing some of the inefficiencies uh, in how Vegas uh, sportsbooks do business. By the way, uh, that part has not changed to this day. It's not as if that model has been adopted in any way. Um, sportsbooks are going to do what sportsbooks do, but it it uh, it got you fascinated in in the business operations, and then maybe uh, maybe this is a stretch to say this, but led Joe to kind of want to 
take over in a certain way. Um, those are my words, not Joe's. Uh, we'll get into Joe's involvement uh, with the story, the biggest story that has been untold, I would say in the three years of VEASAN, the biggest story that has been untold, um, mostly because most people didn't know about it. I did, but there was never a story to actually go on air with, was the sale uh, of CG technology that was out there for a very long time for a song, was available for a song, relatively speaking. Joe's involvement with that and how its origins may have actually been in the greatest game Wall Street ever played. Joe's got some more. <laughs> Joe's got some roots in that as well. Uh, trust me, this is good. Coming back on a numbers game at Visa, the Sports Betting Network. Welcome back to a numbers game with Gil Alexander. Don't forget, now's the time to become a VEASAN Plus subscriber. It's free. You won't have to decide what you want to do, pay or cancel, until at least one of the major sports returns. Just go to VEASAN.com slash subscribe to sign up. That's VEASAN.com slash subscribe. It's Gil Alexander. It is Joe Pita, uh, author of Trading Bases and Joe Pita's uh, Master's Tour Guide, which we'll get into. Uh, but first, this story, which is, okay, so you've gotten to this point. Uh, you started to meet some of the guys over there at, uh, it was Cantor Gaming back in the day, then it became CG Technology. Take us from there and uh, explain to us how deep this actually got. Yeah, so as I mentioned, that summer I saw you know a lot of inefficiencies. And what I saw with Cantor was, um, you know, so, so here I'm, I'm complaining that they're there's an entity betting law that, that nobody is attempting to take advantage of. There is, um, there are, uh, which would require, uh, you know, pockets of capital, right, to commit themselves to, to sort of, uh, uh, to being betting entities. Um, and at the same time, you have one um, sports book in Vegas. And, and, and let's give them credit. They sort of pioneered the outsource uh the outsourced sports book. They probably helped the experience for everybody because everyone had to step up their game somewhat when Cantor first uh, took over the Venetian and uh, what Emerald Lagasse's. Uh, um, those were good experiences for the customer. Um, so they they had some they had some innovative ideas and but to me the gold mine that they had was via their parent Cantor Fitzgerald. They talked to the largest pools of capital in the United States every single day that they were trading stocks and bonds. This would have been such an easy synergy to tell them about how they were going to launch the sort of uh, the, the entity betting sales coverage in Nevada. And that all it would require would be for these, um, you know, for somebody, one of these funds to put someone in Nevada. To me, Cantor was the perfect conduit to do all this. And then also, um, as you kind of touched on, I had a hand in you know, the creation of, of some derivative-like betting products, uh, markets, essentially, uh, that were extremely popular on the street. And I thought were, you know, it was gonna, I thought it would enhance the user experience um, if, if they could ever be rolled out you know, legally in a sports book. So I viewed at the time I was like, man, Cantor is, this is, this is an organization that, that is really well suited to do a lot of things. The problem was, as we know, um, you know, they had the wrong guys in, in the seats. Uh, they, 
you know, you said they changed their name. I kind of view it as an airline that changes their name after they plow into the side of a mountain. You know, they, oh, people forget that the name used to be Allegheny. Um, It's um, so, yeah, they had problems, but those problems resulted in the asset essentially being orphaned um, at the, you know, by the financial institution. So here you have an orphaned asset that they want to spin off and get rid of eventually. Canner Fitzgerald orphaning CG technology. That's right. And, you know, because after they had run into legal problems, it, it, I think they were viewing it as not a core business and more trouble than it's worth. Now me, I'm like, this is also on the cusp of PAPSA being repealed. Like this is, this timing couldn't be better. They want to essentially give this away um, so I put together um, a I became aware of it and, and you know, got inside, you know, was able to uh, as a um, as a serious buyer, you know, was, was shown the books and signed NDAs essentially to really understand the business. And and I put together uh, financial backing to do it. Um, we couldn't pull it off. Uh, and as I like I say, because there are NDAs, I, I you know, I, I can say that. There were issues that price couldn't remedy uh, in making the sale. Just couldn't get the the uh, the you know sort of the money backers comfortable. And these were professional VCs um, with some with some items and 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 it was fair enough. I, I understood. So then I tried a different tact, which was to uh, and and uh, would, so essentially, I go back. Some, to what were some of those items, Joe? Is it is it as benign as I mean, they're not benign, but is it the leases that were part of that, or something worse than that? Now, when you have leases, Gil, if there's something like that, you can usually remedy that with price, right? Like it, it, yeah. it, it was stuff. I, you know, I, I, like I said, I can't go okay. beyond that. But right, if it were just something like, hey, this is an unfavorable lease, we're going to have to lower the price, and and like if you couldn't agree on price, that's one thing. But this was just something that you couldn't remedy. Um, you know, some, some items there couldn't be remedied with, you know, with. with and, and one would one would be sort of, uh, one thing that venture capitalists are um, are don't like is they don't like regulation that can change without notice. So, and to be fair to uh, backers, um, they you know, so a state. Anytime a state can come in and change the rules, um, that that of course it can be uh, that 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 can cause some hesitation. So you put that with then some items at the actual asset, um, and it just couldn't pull it off. So my idea was okay. I still want to run this thing. Let me try running it as it is. You know, it's put me. So I I went to the company and just I I, I tried so hard let me run this. This is worth so much more than you know it is. If we, you know, here's my ideas for the synergy with the with the financial industry, et cetera. Um, PAPS is going to be passed or is, is going to be repealed. You've got a technology play, essentially. This is going to be plug and play. This is why the VCs were so interested in it. They viewed it as a software play, not a, you know, not a gaming play. And these guys, they're, a, Gil, they they're really like, a data company, right? That was the core. Right. They're a data oh, company. well, that's no, yeah. that's that's another arm. That's another arm is the data element. Yes, um, and you know because market makers, we understand. Believe me, when I was a market maker, I, I, 
you wanted well it's there's just there's ways to run that business profitably even if you are at an informational disadvantage and that is something that Cantor should know as well as anyone um so we don't we don't worry you know about you know spanky and rufus can come in we'll still make money off that and then chris knows that i mean south point is an extremely well-run book um i, I really like how they approach the business but just all those things combined it was great, but I'm telling you, Gil, that the people at Canner, they were donkeys. Um, for one thing, they refused to believe it came to me from the highest levels of Cantor that sports betting will never be legal anywhere at Nevada because Sheldon Adelson has guaranteed me that. And I was like, you mean the Sheldon Adelson that just got clowned by Mark Davis? That that guy, that's who you're. That's who you're. That's your weather vane, and you know that doesn't go. That doesn't go over well necessarily. But it 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 it. I couldn't get them to understand the potential that was there, um, and it just I I couldn't I couldn't pull it off. And eventually they they gave away the assets because um, that yeah. it it. Uh, uh, and it was too bad because they, they really did do some innovations. Um, you know, they, they now the prop when I say the wrong guy was in the seat, it was astounding to me how many people within the industry um, management turned off just with sort of their approach um, when they got here. Even I, when I had an attorney uh, to sort of start the licensing um, for me, um, he <laughs> he. He laughed because he said, you know, we, we were just kind of talking about some stuff. And even he had a story about uh, Cantor management. And, and he just keeps and his, his words were, they could have gotten so much more done with a different attitude. And I'm like, yeah, we're going to change that. Um, but that was, uh, you know, never got to. And, but that would have been fun. That I, yeah, I, I mean, really I remember loved. you describing it. Yeah, I remember you describing it at the time as it turns out that Cantor Fitzgerald hates their own business. They hate their own uh, business arm that is CG technology. And, you know, it explains a lot for why when PASPA was deemed unconstitutional and sports betting was legalized, we heard about DraftKings and every company under the sun moving in that we never heard a whisper, right? Not even a whisper from CG technology during that time. And a lot of that uh, explains why that's the case. By the way, I don't know if you're allowed to tell me this, um, but just for giggles, and by the way, just for factual sake, uh, William Hill did buy the assets of Cantor Gaming of uh, CG Technology at the time in 2019. Uh, that's a vague way of describing it. They bought the assets of CG Technology, but that's what's been reported. It, uh, two years ago, three years ago, if I had uh, 20 million lying around, could I have bought the entirety of CG Technology? Oh, I, 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 it, uh, you could have made an offer. I think you would have been, uh, uh, you wouldn't have been, I don't believe you would have been, uh, laughed out of the room. Well said. Okay. Uh, we'll try to work on the technology. I know it's bouncing in and out and we, uh, we're trying to get every little detail that Joe talked about. Uh, we'll do one more segment, Joe, cause I want to come back how you transitioned after this, uh, from your entire baseball betting experience, the flirtation, uh, more than a flirtation, obviously with, uh, CG technology, uh, and how you transitioned to golf 
and wrote this uh, 2019 Joe Pita's Master's Tour Guide uh, book, which we had you on the air talking about um, the discoveries you made. Tiger eventually <laughs> ends up winning the Masters. Uh, I'm sure you had to be uh, sort of uh, fortified by that or at least validated by that. We'll get into that transition uh, and maybe even get some thoughts on how you feel about baseball saying, yeah, none of these agreements come out to come to pass. We may just end up playing a 50 game schedule. That'll be fascinating. Joe Pita, uh, the guest today, author, uh, former Wall Street and uh, Wall Street exec, and uh, find out what Joe's doing these days, which uh, you should probably have asked earlier. But we'll uh, we'll talk about that coming back right here on a numbers game at Veasan. It's a numbers game with your host Gil Alexander. You want those idiots who believe in analytics? Hour number two of a numbers game right here at Visa, the Sports Betting Network. Gil Alexander, Sirius XM Channel 204, Visa.com, the Visa app, Fubo, Slate, Game Plus. Joe Pita with us still, uh, kind enough to uh, hang out through the break here. Uh, and Joe, I was just t- telling you off air, you know, the, one of the nice things about, you know, you try to make lemonade out of lemons. And so this pandemic obviously has been the most surreal, strange time uh, in so many ways in all of our lives. And, you know, we got to do a show. And, you know, when this started, I'm like, I don't know what I'm going to talk about. You know, SVP would say the same thing on SportsCenter. I don't know what we're going to talk about, but we'll figure it out. Uh, And so one of the things that I decided to do was go into this sort of Roy Firestone mode uh, for sports betting. And it's so, you know, because if not now, when, right, I'll never get the chance to do this in the middle of of a sports season. But it's been so fascinating because, you know, you get the originators like Alan Boston on one end of the spectrum. You get the Spankies of the world. I shouldn't even say the Spankies of the world because Spanky's one of a kind on his end of the spectrum in what he does um, with his network in sports betting. You're I don't know if I know a guy who does not deal in sports betting on a day to day basis that is as much a part of sports betting or probably is more entrenched in sports betting without actively being in it as you have been over the years for all of these reasons. You did the, you did trading bases. You had that experience in 2012. Then this entire canter gaming arc that went on for years, first trying to buy them, putting together the money, then saying, you know what? All right, you don't want this. Let me run it. Um, and so I just find that fascinating. That tells me, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that there's still this itch for you, and I wonder if that itch has been scratched for the last time or if you think it'll come up again. I would still like to help innovate the industry with some product offerings. Um, I still think I have that to bring to the table for somebody that's what I would call the sell side. That That's the, you know, the, the uh, originator side of the counter. So I, I would... Uh, that that is something I, I would I've sort of backburnered as exploring um, because I did go one of the other things I did that I didn't mention about in the in the CG arc was through you know a lot of the people that I had met or entities I had met I went to just about everybody I could that was an existing book to talk about a strategic um, uh, uh, transaction which is you know, usually means M and A you know some sort of merger or acquisition. I wanted to team up, um, and there there was a case where original management at CG had burned so many bridges that just mentioning what I was trying to do made people <laughs> leery, and it, which was you know that's hey that's they made that bed. Um, I was going to try to change that culture, 
Um, but that was, uh, that was certainly an obstacle as well. Yeah. Um, all right. So, you know, you go through this and then the last iteration of Joe Pita that my audience is aware of, and this is, this is what's been so amazing over the last decade, Joe, is you've had so many different tentacles. I said this at the beginning, then you go golf, uh, and you do uh, Joe Pita's 2019 tour guide uh, master's preview, which is like this pivot where everybody was like, whoa, what's Pita doing? I thought he was the baseball guy. I didn't know he was into golf. Uh, and this was this was no run of the mill thing. Uh, you were you were like, I'm going to do this the way that I do everything and I'm going to deep dive it. And you got access to something nobody else has ever done, has gotten access to, I should say. Yeah, that's right. So again, you're always looking like, what what would the hook for a book be? Because the first thing they, when you write in a book, the first thing you sh- really should ask yourself is, could this be a magazine article? Um, and if it could be, then you don't have a book. Uh, and so what I, as I was diving into golf analytics, and I saw a much less explored subject matter than certainly baseball. I had, what we didn't talk about was I had been writing at ESPN for three years, and it felt like I was done with baseball. Um, let me, let me just step in real quick here. Uh, let me just step in real quick, Joe, to identify ourselves. It's Gil Alexander, Joe Pita right here on a numbers game at VEASAN, the sports betting network, Sirius XM channel 204. Yeah. I completely glossed over that. You wrote baseball for ESPN for so many years. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Yeah. Mostly at chalk, but some of it was on the main site as well. Uh, and just kind of felt like I, you know, I had been writing those previews that now for like seven years, uh, every team, you know, 700 to a thousand words a team. How many more, how many different ways could I say cluster luck? Right. Like I I was right. I I didn't have, I I didn't feel like I had plus the analytics had improved so much. I didn't really feel like I had much more to add there. Um, Tell the truth though, Joe, the the rubber hit the road when that Hamilton piece never made the, made the light of day. That's the truth. There was some bad, there was some ill, I was very, we were, we were, we, yeah, we, I, I will put it like this. We, uh, we were, there, there was a, there were talks about full-time uh, employment. Um, at the same time, the timing just kept being wrong. Um, uh, whether it was just hiring freezes, layoffs elsewhere. And then when they were ready, maybe something was going on in my profession. Um, Chad left, um, which, yes. which, uh, you know, he was a big champion of mine there. Um, but the experience overall was great, but I remember when we were talking about a full-time job, I was, and it was going to expand much more beyond chalk. I remember being told in two different, by two different, either editors or senior producers, et cetera. You know, we, we need the Bill Barnwell of, of baseball. And at the same time, I was told we would like a tone a Bill Simmons tone without the misogyny, right? And so I wrote the, I, so I was like, okay, I'm taking that as a marching order and then wrote on spec um, a preview for the 2016 playoffs. And and yes, it, it was, it, it was a Hamilton themed one. Um, and it didn't get Your published. Your daughters loved Hamilton and, at the time. Yeah. It, yeah. Yeah. Well, I did. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah. so did I. Um, it, it, uh, and yeah, that, that was, uh, that to me was exactly what they were looking for. And on top of that, as you know, you know, to, to it, 
it correctly predicted every single playoff series in 2016 before they were played. So it could have been something yeah. that they would have, you know, constantly been going back to. And plus, at this point, we had been building up a pretty nice viewership in terms of page views and, and the video hits, et cetera, for the writing. So I just kind of felt like this is the this is the stuff sort of the launching pad. Um, and yeah, when when that so I kind of, you know, was like, yeah, should I be as serious about this as uh, and maybe not? And that's when I was like, OK, let, let's turn to something else and and golf. And you were mentioning, you know, I was talking about you need a hook. Well, as I started looking into golf analytics, I could tell it wasn't heavily covered, which makes it sort of a greenfield for writing. But then I also found on the master's website um, stroke by stroke data for. Uh, the 2018 Masters um, that was comparable to the shot link data that all, you know, PGA Tour analytics are based on. But because this wasn't owned by the PGA Tour or not, and not run by the PGA Tour, they didn't have this data. Um, so I took it and created the book, um, previewing essentially the 2019 Masters and using all the data from 2018. And that was fun, right? Totally new area, totally new readership. And uh, that was a uh, that was a wonderful time. Um, it I was it was nerve wracking before because unlike a baseball season where your stuff plays out over 162 games, um, I had I had a you know I had a unique top ten for that tournament, and by and especially the winner having projected Tony Finau to win, and that was not that was a true projection. That was not a based on the value, this is where you should put your money. Like this was my pick to win. Um, and, and his odds kept getting worse as, as, as tea times approached. Um, so I was very nervous on the eve of the, of the masters. Um, I did have Tiger Woods third. I was high man on Tiger. Um, it, you know, it, just in, in, uh, I didn't really like his futures price by any means. Um, but in, in terms of, you know, what, what I thought his potential were and that he had, I mean, I, I wrote it, why he had a real chance to win. Um, and hopefully, you know, sort of keyed some people into some new stuff about that tournament um, and, you know, how to handicap golf. Um, I, I think it was successful because Rufus had me on his podcast and shut me down on two different topics that he did not want <laughs> disclose. <laughs> That's when you know it's air. right. That's when you know it's that, good. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Do you so, have plans oh, and, to oh, do is, different versions of this, Joe, in the yeah, future? Well, or is, we didn't talk about 2020, Gil. Gil, I dropped yeah. 2020 the March 11th, which was the Wednesday uh, before the I, – I dropped it the night before the players was supposed to tee off, which was the oh. Wednesday night that all hell broke loose. Uh, yeah. And, yes, the 2020 preview is just in digital format. Um, so it's more of an addendum. Uh, I sort of update any chapters from the original book that would be different. For instance, if it was 2018 data, now I have all the 2019 data. And if it was 2019 projection, now it's a chapter that's a 2020 projection. Uh, so yes, that's there. We'll see how, uh, relevant it is in November. Obviously we're not going to get, you know, current form is going to be very different. Uh, but as I, you know, as I put in the book, course history matters more at this event than any other by a mile so you know we'll 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 see how that uh, uh preview goes as as well but last year was fun Where's that a- uh, made my obviously those first 
the, the Saturday of the Masters was one of the most enjoyable experiences I've ever had seeing him uh, play his way into the final group um, on Saturday. Yeah, your your anticipation. No one, <laughs> Tony Finau had no idea how much you were into Tony Finau that day. You were more staked in him than he might have been himself. Uh, but but Tiger ends up doing this thing. So w- a couple of loose ends here. Uh, some of which is my fault. One, where is that available again? Twenty twenty version. Yeah, that it's not. Uh, it uh, it is. If you re- go to my if you go to my Twitter feed, it, it's being sold through a an online pub- publisher. Um, and I, gosh, because it's been a couple months, I, I, I can't even, re- you know, the link is there in my, uh, uh, in my Twitter bio. Um, and certainly as we get closer to the event, you know, I'll, I'll come on, we'll do a piece, you know, stuff like that. Okay. Uh, but that it's, that's the only place it's uh, available. This was really to, uh, to, for, you know, for people who enjoyed the, the first one, um, this was a, like, Hey, here's the work I would do. And here, I'm going to dump it in your lap as well. Yeah. At Magic Rat SF. Tribute to Bruce Springsteen. At Magic Rat SF is Joe's Twitter. Uh, I also interrupted you. You were saying uh, Rufus shut you down a couple times and you got excited about saying something else. Do you remember what it was? And then I veered you to the 2020 version. Uh, Maybe it'll it'll come into your head. Uh, Tell us this for people who missed it. You uncovered as part of your book, and this has nothing to do with anything, but just an amazing stat. You uncovered the greatest, maybe the greatest tiger stat there ever was in that 2019 version. Do you remember what that was? Yeah, it, it was his, it's his, it's his plus stroke gain streak and, and uncovered unfair because Mark Brody did write about it first at the time. I didn't know about it. Mark Brody, of course, being the godfather of all of all golf stats. Uh, but I did tell the story of how I stumbled on it uh, and he nearly had a perfect year where every single um, round that he played for the entire, and it was more than the calendar, it was more than a 12-month period, but uh, so he had the, the Tiger you know, stroke game uh, streak, and then the calendar stroke game streak, his entire t- 2000 season, it, the very last round of the, of the year, which was in Valderrama in Spain in November during a, a WGC event, uh, it, it, he lost it. He lost that streak of gaining strokes on the field. Um, and I believe it was at, it was in the eighties, 86 or 92. It might've been 86 uh, straight rounds. Nobody ever gets above like in the teens. It's an unbelievable streak. Uh, we had fun talking about it. I wrote about it in the book. Um, I, I, we heard when we talked about it on air, Chris, the bear Felica called in, he had the scorecard, which I couldn't find. And while you were on air with me, that's right. And it, it turns out he went like double, triple uh, to finish the round. He literally uh. choked. But then it turns out he didn't choke because I heard from a guy who was at that event. And uh, he was a Canadian guy. And he was following Mike Weir, who was in the group behind Tiger. Weir actually won that event. And it turns out those greens had baked out. And the 17th at Valderrama slopes from, uh, from back to front down with a lake in front of the green. And it was apparently near impossible with the baked out green to actually put a ball on the green. And there is a story that I later found, I think from Alan Shupnik, who who was in the locker room after Tiger Room's last round of 2000, and Tiger was taking a club and destroying his bag and locker. He was so mad about the condition of the course. And all those go together... And the funny thing is, I still don't think Tiger knows that, that that's you know, what I was. What he had that's exactly on. what I was going to yeah. say. 
Yeah, like this is such it's such an amazing thing. We don't know that even that he was even aware of that. And to if he had known and to have lost it like that, oh my god, oh my god. Because yeah. uh, you could say, oh, he wouldn't care about such a thing. Yeah, it was a pretty unbelievable streak. Strokes gained, which is the foundation of everything uh, in Joe Pita's uh, Masters Tour Guide. Uh, so. For those wondering, because I'm sort of uh, bearing what you're doing now, and your dog wants to know this as well, what are you, what are you actually doing with your life these days? What does Joe Peter do on a day to day day to day basis now? Yeah, I have a new job in the financial industry that I that I took last summer, and that's why the 2012 book was not a full book. Um, it it, uh, it it was a it was a new role, and it it. it uh, um, it was just, yeah, I love it, but it was not going to allow me the time needed to actually write, uh, a full book. I'm sorry about the dog. It's, it, it must that's be walk right. time. Um, but that's, uh, <laughs> uh, so that's what I do now. So I'm still in the financial industry and, uh, and that's why anything, you know, these other ideas about the industry, um, those are all sort of backburnered. Yeah. Okay. Um, but you're you're you plan on I mean, I don't know, maybe you do, maybe you don't. I I know that this job is is all consuming for you, but um, uh, you work for who's, who's the gentleman you work for a hedge fund work for is Steve Cohen. Is that who it is? It, it, as is publicly available on some other sites. Uh, yes, I work for a, a firm, uh, an asset management firm called Point72. Uh, which was founded by a gentleman named Steve Cohen. That that is correct. Okay. Um, so let me ask you this: um, Any insight on the New York Mets acquisition? Because I know that he was named uh, when it came to the Mets. Let me push the envelope here, as they say. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, uh, we were certainly excited uh, at the firm to hear about it. Um, I don't know. Uh, anything beyond, uh, I mean, the firm, the, 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 from what we were told, the purchase itself would not have been made by our firm, but would have, uh, been, you know, it would have been a family purchase, which means it wasn't part of our business. Uh, and it, uh, but it was exciting. I think, you know, I was certainly excited by, remember, I, I, I love the overlap between asset management and, and Moneyball, right? I think it would have been mm-hmm. very interesting to have an owner with an analytical um, uh, Wall Street background. Um, I would have loved to see if, if that would have worked. But, you know, as far as the details, uh, I read them just like you do in the paper. Um, and it uh, and one thing, you know, so as far as, it, you know, not coming together again, I, I know what you know in the paper. I will say that we have an expression um, on the trading floor, um, w- that we say good mess, you know, maybe you were late to the counter to put a bet down. Yeah. It's quickly you know, <laughs> good mess. Uh, if the reports are correct in how that transaction did not come to fruition, a good mess, right? Like, Oh my God. Uh, and if you're a selling partner who, you know, is, is, uh, uh, missed out on a multi-billion dollar sale. And I, I can't imagine you're, uh, I can't imagine you're happy. I can't imagine you think, and this segues into your next piece on, on baseball. Uh, I can't imagine you think that that asset is going to be worth what it was, you know, for quite some time now. Yeah. I, I just, I guess I, you know, this is, and I'll just wrap it up with this Joe and I'll, I'll talk, I'll 
get into the 50 game thing with baseball, but it just seems to me that what's the expression? Uh, just when you think you're out, right? They come pull you back in. You just end up through no real design, right? Like you didn't, whether it's this job now that happens to have this flirtation with buying, you know, the Mets or whatever it is, what we see in reports, um, whether it's, you know, just the nature of the CG technology arc, uh, you just seem to get reeled in, in a, in a very, uh, I don't know, the universe, the universe just reels you into sports betting and to sports itself. So I'm, I'm guessing we haven't heard the last from you. That's just a hunch. I don't know if I have, I have nothing behind that, but I get the sense that you also feel that way. Don't you like, don't, don't you think that this is not your last chapter? You know, you surround yourself with people. If you'd like to surround yourself with people who have similar interests, um, yeah, things can pop up. Right. And, and, uh, uh, I think that's the, uh, that's the, well, that's that's the whole point of, of networking, right? You know, surround yourself by smart people who have similar interests, and a lot of times you don't know what's around the corner. Yeah, um, yeah, it, and and I think there's a I think there is more than one person listening to this now, and this is I'm gonna toot your horn for you, Joe. That has to be listening to this and has to say to themselves, this dude is unique, uh, and might be the guy that I need to run this. Because uh, there's so many now with legalization, there's so many different, uh, you know, ways to uh, skin the cat in sports betting and so many different positions, so many different uh, pieces of expertise one needs. And so, uh, you know, not that you're not happy doing what you're doing, because I know it's it's bigger than most things. But that uh, that occurs to me as well. Joe Pita, author of Trading Bases, still available uh, where all books are sold. Uh, great book about modeling and then about his history, about his summer of 2012. And then uh, Joe Pita's tour guide, 2019 Masters, but now in a 2020 digital version. If you want to stay for five minutes, Joe, we could do the 50-game baseball thing because I want to get your thoughts. Can I do that? Five more minutes? Well, no. Let's do it. Joe Pita. I radioed him. I said, hey, would you mind staying after the break? Coming back on a numbers game at Visa, the Sports Betting Network. Welcome back to a numbers game with Gil Alexander. It is Gil Alexander, Joe Pita, hang out with us uh, this hour. Chrissy Andrews still to come. Uh, Joe, sad news from the NBA. Wes Unseld has passed away. Wes Unseld at the age of seventy-four, former Washington Bullets great, and a guy who uh, was beloved by team owner Abe Poland so much that he became the Bullets head coach. He was the Bullets GM. He was the Bullets VP in years after his playing career. But most notably uh, was the NBA's MVP and Rookie of the Year. Uh, So he's the MVP his rookie season in 1969. Uh, Ended up, played at Louisville before that in college. Uh, Ended up winning a NBA championship with the Washington Bullets. He, the Big E, Elvin Hayes, and Bobby D, Bobby Dandridge, uh, led the Bullets in 1978 to the NBA title. I was a kid, uh, a little kid when that happened. Um, And all I can say from those days is, and you pointed this out off break, because whenever I bring it up, you, you made the key point. That was those were the two years before Bird and Magic, when the Bullets beat the Sonics in 78 and the Sonics beat the Bullets in 79. When the Bullets won the NBA championship, Sports Illustrated ran the story on page 75. Oh, by the way, the Bullets won the NBA championship. Think about that. Yeah, what a that really is a before and after. Yeah. Wes Unseld, what a great guy. Uh, passing away, addition, he had complications. Of course, the fourth. Yeah, complications. Uh, a fourth I was thinking about, you mentioned Dandridge and Big E. 
and then 75 year old uh, uh, Tom McMillan with the gray hair, right? And that, that was Tom. The- Oh no, Tom McMillan was after that. Tom McMillan played for the Bullets in the 80s. 75 was the was the when the Golden State Warriors and Rick Barry swept the Bullets. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, okay. I can just picture that. that those uniforms and and uh, the mop of gray hair. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, from those yes. RIP Wes Unseld. All right, Joe, uh listen, a lot of our time the past couple months has been uh filled with Here's the latest NHL planner. Here's the latest NBA. The NBA really has like four plans a day, it seems like. Uh, but baseball, man, listen, I've been one of the few people. This is a strike. I'm not even co- – this has nothing to do with the pandemic anymore to me. This is a strike. This is 1994. It feels like there's a bunch of owners. We, In fact, we know from reporting that there's a few owners who don't want this to get played. Uh, they had to know the owners that their latest offer to the, to the players last week was going to fall just – uh, dead to the uh, to the players on arrival, but Jeff Passan reports yesterday. He goes, "Look, this isn't being proposed officially, but there is this thing in motion that if none of these other plans work out, that Major League Baseball is prepared as a default to play a 50-game range season that would pay players full prorated salaries." And I've made this remark the whole time, like, I can't believe baseball purists of all people have been okay with, yeah, realignment, DH in both leagues. Like, they're like, any baseball is better than no baseball. And I've always been like, what? Really? What do you think about a 50-game season, Joe? Yeah, the whole thing, you're right. They're, they're stepping all over themselves. Uh, and you say strike. I, I, I would term it a lockout more than a strike because yes, i think you're maybe so. correct in saying it's the owners who don't want to abide by the first agreement that they struck back in march right um in terms of the proration they, they want to take it further from there uh it, it it is amazing to me how disorganized this industry looks compared to the uh especially basketball you I mean you see you see them working together, uh, and and this does seem certainly when you get a guy like Max Scherzer as your spokesman, who would stand to lose more than anyone except like Garrett Cole, right? And um, with, by not playing, um, he's firing heat at the owners. Uh, so it, it 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 I am skeptical that that anything would happen. Fifty games, yeah. It's it's. Do you just make them division games? I mean, I, I I don't. You know, I don't. I don't know. It's almost like, yeah. There, there. It's it's so hard to kind of wrap your arms around what this would look like or how it would be helpful. Um, but you know, what are your thoughts? Do you think it's going to happen? I can't imagine fifty games happening. First of all, who somebody's going to win the batting title with a five fifteen batting average, and somebody's going to win the home run title with nineteen dingers, right? It's like it's just, the whole thing is so ridiculous. That I'm like, who wants this? Like, who would even? Not only that, though, every day and every week that goes by. Baseball yep. will get pushed into this, you know, oh, the golf majors and football. Like, nobody cares at that point. Nobody cares now. Joe, I got to run, man. I, I've, I've enjoyed it. I apologize for uh, keeping, you, <laughs> keeping you over. But these commercials come when I least uh, want them to. Thank you, As man. Always. And, and best of luck. We'll talk soon. We'll talk before the Masters.
at Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. 